0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander in Paris. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host Kobus van Staten in Cape Town, South Africa at the Center for Chinese Studies at Stellenbosch University. Kobus, how's it going? Very well, thank you. It's incredibly sunny here. Oh, it's incredibly cold here, so don't don't rub it in. So we're going to talk about three topics this week. Uh, Given that the Africa Cup of Nations is currently underway, which for those of us here in Europe and in Africa is a huge event that everyone's following, uh, certainly probably in North America, it's probably not so big, but uh, Africa Cup of Nations and China's role, uh, particularly in Gabon, we're going to take a look at in one of... uh, Kobus, uh, his uh, cohorts at Stellenbosch, penned a paper on that what that we'll discuss. Also, Standard Charter uh, in the past couple weeks has been talking a lot about the growth in m activity, mergers and acquisitions, particularly among the Chinese, and kind of wonder if there's a little bit of a conflict of interest in Standard Bank. Uh, so Standard Bank, not Standard Charter, excuse me, Standard Bank. Uh, and then finally, we will uh, kind of make this a little more personal. And uh, we're going to talk about an essay that uh, that I wrote last week on just who are the Chinese in Africa? Okay, Kobus, let's get started with the Africa Cup of Nations. I'm sure you're following. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. It's the elephants. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I guess I stumped you on that one. The elephants. I think the South African team is the elephants. Uh, so anyway, we're a uh, team is called Bafana Bafana. Usually Bafana. it's called the boys. There we go. And, um, but I think they
1: didn't make it. They didn't qualify for the African Cup of Nations, as far as I understand.
0: Okay, so that that shows you. Okay, so my soccer, my football, soccer knowledge um, is a lot, uh, is a lot more limited. So we'll stay away from the sport of it all, since it sounds like both of us aren't going to add too much on that front. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about an essay that uh, one of your uh, your fellow PhD. Is he a postdoc or is he a Ph.D. candidate? I think he's a Ph.D. (laughs) candidate. He's a Ph.D. candidate. Hermano Ndinguino Mimpera. I probably hacked that name to pieces. Uh, Pendant called the Africa Cup of Nations, uh, China's Goals. Now, China's been very, very engaged in what's called stadium diplomacy. And stadium diplomacy is all over the world, throughout the Caribbean, Latin America, South Asia, and particularly in Africa. The Chinese government loves to build stadiums. In fact, uh, Martyrs Stadium in Kinshasa, where I used to live, was uh, um, the main is the main football stadium there. In fact, built by the Chinese, and uh, also in Libreville in Gabon. So, what what's your thought on you know the the effectiveness in terms of soft power and in terms of achieving China's broader goals in Africa when they build stadiums like they've done in Gabon?
1: Well, you know, kind of, it seems to me that. Um, well, then you know, except for the for the the construction deal that comes out of it, that obviously has value. More than that, obviously, it's more of a symbolic investment. Than uh, you know, an investment an investment that really pays money, but I think particularly in a kind of soccer mad culture like Africa, you know, kind of building these stadiums, it, it does have it does carry a certain amount of emotional power, you know, kind of because they also become fixtures of a landscape. So if you're in a city like Libreville, you know, the new Stade de la Métier, there's you know the stadium of, of friendship. Um, you know, kind of becomes a big, big feature on on the skyline. Um, And I think, you know, kind of, I think it it does carry emotional weight.
0: Now, this is a 40,000 seat stadium right in the center of Libreville, or I presume in the center of Libreville. It's obviously very visible. The question is, does anybody care or know that the Chinese built it? I mean, you know, I look at the stadiums in all the cities that I've lived in, and I think to myself, I don't really care. As long as I can go watch the football match that I want to watch or go watch the performance or concert, I don't really care who built it. So what's the advantage to building stadiums?
1: You know, I wonder if it, if it might not be something that that... People would normally not take notice of, but then um, once, once you know, kind of there's an election on, then that becomes something that, that the the politician, the incumbent, can point to as something that they achieved. You know, kind of I think Africa. Um, these kind of big infrastructure projects in Africa carry a lot of symbolic weight, you know. Kind of, so someone who, who can who can claim to have um, changed the landscape in that kind of way, in particularly kind of have made it better, you know, kind of through building something like a stadium. That that I think, you know, it, it remains something that you can point to.
0: Yeah. Now, let's talk a little bit about Gabon in particular, because I think this is an interesting case that where China is does not have the advantages that it may have in other countries. Now, Johanna Janssen, who is a Swedish Ph.D. candidate at a university in Denmark, and I heard the name of the university is escaping me. But she last year penned a paper on the extractive resource challenges facing uh, the Chinese in both Gabon and the DRC. And one of the things about Gabon, which is different, is that the French literally wrote the legal code. The French industri- French industry industries have deep-seated uh, relationships with the government, and French industry is really the dominant power there. And it's been one of the markets that the Chinese have found uh, extremely difficult to crack, according to Janssen. And so these statism and these high-profile infrastructure projects might be an end run around the limitations that they face on the part of the French.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, you know, kind of the... You know, at the moment, the Chinese's biggest um, project in in Gabon, <coughs> excuse me, is the um, is the Bilinga um, iron ore uh, project that that was super controversial when it started because it, it's it's in the Ivindo National Park, uh, which is home to a lot of lowland chimpanzees and and gorillas and so on, um, and uh, you know, kind of that seems to have been the one the one kind of strong foothold the Chinese have made Um however I wanted to, to actually it to that um, I want to ask you this recently Bloomberg has been reporting that the Gabonese government is in, is in talks with BHP Bulletin about possibly kind of like taking that project away from China and giving it to giving it to BHP. Um, do you think that this kind of symbolic infrastructure that China, that China is doing is a way of trying to, to kind of strengthen their position in Gabon in that way?
0: It might be, but you know, the fact is that the Chinese do this so universally. I mean, you know, how many stadiums have they built? How many hospitals have they built? They're really, it seems to me, working off of a template uh, in lots of different countries. So I'm not sure you can draw too much out of any one stadium or any one hospital or any one infrastructure project in any one country and come to a conclusion. That said, um, it might be the fact that BHP Billiton is just becoming far more aggressive in Gabon, recognizing the fact that the Chinese are... Swooping up so many of the uh, of the natural resources, particularly in the extractive industries, those deals. Um, but again, in, in a place like Gabon, I have to come back to Janssen's report uh, not to underestimate the traditional powers like the French. Um, this you know, across Africa. I'm not a huge fan of of the French. I think they're declining power, much like the United States. I think that their, their influence is shrinking very, very rapidly. They don't really understand that their influence is shrinking very, very rapidly. But Gabon may be one of the few places where the French, uh, you know, remain strong. And, and that gives the Gabonese government some leverage, too, so that they can play the Chinese, the Australians, and the French off of each other. So that may be also something that's going on with BHP Billiton as well.
1: I think so. I mean the other interesting thing about Gabon is that it's it's it seems to be really emerging in the in the kind of extractive industries market at the moment. You know, kind of um iron ore obviously is is, is growing. Um another thing that's that's really growing in Gabon is wood. Um, you know, kind of and, and the kind of hunger for wood in the first world for hardwoods in the first world is isn't is, is not going down, you know. Um so it, it seems like Carbon is is positioning itself to to be kind of to you know to take a kind of a stronger position in that respect in
0: the future. And don't underestimate also that they've got uh, some some very deep deep water oil reserves that have been traditionally extremely difficult to get to. Um, CNPC, China National Petroleum Corporation, I, if I can correct, or it's either sino and CNPC, um, is doing some exploration, some very small exploration. But again, we are in the backwater, the backyard of Total and some of the French oil companies as well that are in there as well. So the, the range, you know, I, I think you're... You know, uh, your colleague at uh, Stellenbosch in his paper, he said, small but interesting. And I think that's the way to describe the Chinese investments in in Gabon. Very much... Experimental in some respects. Again, they're closed out because of this French legal system that's there, this French-inspired legal system, um, and the and the power of the French. But at the same time, it's probably going to grow very, very quickly as the French influence continues to wane. So, um, okay, well, let's move on to our second topic. We didn't really talk too much about uh, the Africa Cup of Nations, but I guess we touched on the stadiums that they're playing in. So, um, but we'll talk a little bit about. Uh, we'll come back to the Africa Cup of Nations, I think, in our next podcast in two weeks as it wraps up just to kind of see where China stood on all of it. So we're going to talk now about Standard Bank. And Standard Bank has been making quite a bit of noise in the past few weeks on the volume of Chinese mergers and acquisitions in Africa, particularly in South Africa. Um, Now, before we get started on Standard Bank, do you know a little bit about them, about their background and kind of who owns them? Well, Standard Bank
1: is, a, is an old South African bank um, that um, you know, kind of, it, it has a long history in, is, as a as a bank that, that kind of do, doing internal banking in South Africa. Um, then, in two thousand and seven, um, the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China bought um, bought a five point five billion dollar sh- share in Standard Bank. Well, that is, that was about twenty percent um at that stage that was the biggest Chinese investment in Africa up to up to then um and um, since then um Standard bank has been very has been very aggressively kind of like positioning itself as a kind of a you know obviously it's it's, it's moving away from just being in South Africa it's 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 positioning itself as a as an
0: emerging markets kind of uh investment advisor so it's its influence extends beyond just South Africa it's really positioning itself to be a continent-wide kind of the m a, continent-wide player. Exactly. Okay. And so Nigerian banks also play heavily in this, but of course they don't have the backing of the ICBC. Um, the ICBC is the, you know, the, it's obviously it's the commercial bank of China. So there are a lot of what's funding, a lot of overseas Chinese expansion. They're providing these loans that that really facilitates the Chinese state-owned enterprises to to reach deeper, not only in Africa, but also elsewhere around the world. So, so then with that context of a 20% ownership from ICBC in Standard Bank, the fact that Standard Bank came out and really, you know, with this, and they, there was about three or four reports that came out in a whole week of coverage that I was kind of tweeting on this, which suggested that MA activity in Africa, fueled by Chinese money, and also with the European debt crisis playing a role, uh, it was surging. And I think the numbers, let me just say what the numbers, 20% owned by Chinese. What was the number? There was a surge that they said. Uh, you, you don't have that number off the top of your head, do you? Yeah.
1: According to standard the in 2011 the mergers and acquisitions between China and Africa increased by 90 percent 90 percent the number number that they said in 2011 was five billion dollars now I mean, 90% sounds crazy to me, I'm, and, and I'm not sure exactly how to interpret that number. I mean, does it mean that it just, you know, kind of that there was such a spike from an already kind of high level of activity, or that some, so that people suddenly kind of woke up and, 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 you know, that it increased 90% from from a lower number? I'm,
0: I'm not sure what that means. Well, I think it's probably the latter than the former, because up until now, the Chinese have not done a lot on the joint venture M&A side in Africa. What it's been mostly is Chinese companies, state-owned enterprises, Oftentimes, bringing over all of their materials and doing investments entirely on their own. So the MA, you know, the fact is that it's grown 90%, which implies that, you know, it was about a billion dollars, uh, you know, just under a billion. Uh, in 2010, it goes to $5 billion in 2011. It's suggestive that the Chinese are adapting their business model to also do partnerships, which they hadn't done in the past. So it might have started from that low level and skyrocketed up. And it's probably a number if, in fact, it went 90% in one year. We can probably expect it to go to continue to grow.
1: So I mean, do you, what what I'm wondering about is what what instigated this change is what was what kind of flipped the switch and my, my feeling is that that switch
0: must have been flipped in Beijing. Uh, yes, it was certainly was it was flipped in Beijing. There's no doubt. Might be think about it a couple different ways. When you do M and A activity and you that is obviously you know either a merge or an acquisition, but oftentimes it's a merger. Your risk can be spread out, so you're not putting out all of the capital yourself. Um, so there might be that, you know, you find a partner, that partner brings some capital and some resources to the agreement or to the partnership, and then you bring some to it. And so in that case, China may be limiting its risk and becoming more sophisticated. Remember that the Chinese investments in Africa are really about 10 years old, since, you know, 12 if you, you know, count back to the first uh, forum on China-Africa. So this is might be just the natural evolution of of their economic development in Africa. So the first phase was... You know, to build infrastructure and to, you know, own the extractive industries and buy those mines. The second phase might be what we're entering into now is more mergers and acquisitions where you're partnering with oil companies, partnering with banks, and that might be what we're seeing. Hard to tell, but that's just my, my working theory right now.
1: My feeling is also that it's, it's, it, you know, kind of the, the nature of these particular deals, um, particularly the deals that, that Standard was um, advising on, um, is revealing to me. I mean, the biggest one was a $1.3 billion deal um, to take over um, Metaregs, um which is a, a conglomerate that mines copper and cobalt um, in the DRC. Um, but the second biggest one was uh, a 25% sale of the Shanduka Group, which is a South African conglomerate. And the interesting thing about Shanduka is it has a much wider kind of portfolio than Metarex has. So Shanduka um, is a big shareholder in, um, in Coca-Cola South Africa and McDonald's South Africa. And it also is a, has a big share in TBWA Hunter Skyris, which is one of South Africa's biggest ad agencies. So you see there that, you know, kind of that opens the door to China having a much wider kind of, uh, you know, kind of investment in Africa that, that, that goes much wider than extractive industries.
0: And and that's probably going to be the next phase of what we're going to see as well. So if you, if you look forward in the next, okay, so if 2011 was the beginning of the mergers and acquisition phase, 2012 may be the kind of emergence of China as a non-extractive player, which is what we, you know, thought impossible ones. So, for example, we talked last time about, you know, CCTV launching. So them getting more into media advertising, that makes some sense right there. Also, to see them kind of, you know, spread the risk to do financial services into other non-extractive industries, um, such as Coca-Cola and what, that might be another spread of their risk as well. Because if they have everything tied up in commodities, um, then if the commodities markets fall, as they did, you know, five, ten years ago, Um, those investments are going to suffer tremendously. Um, One of the things to also keep in mind was how much political pressure was put on the Chinese, the sovereign wealth funds back home that were investing so heavily in U.S. treasuries. And a lot of people got upset back in Beijing and across China when U.S. treasuries fell, when the instability of the U.S. dollar came into question, um, that China had too many eggs in one basket. So this might be a diversification of their African portfolio uh, in in such a way that it just makes the risk that much lighter, or one presumes that much lighter. I mean, frankly, the dollar values of buying TBW, an investment in TBW versus TBWA, I think it is, versus, you know, into a Sudanese oil platform is is incomparable. The Sudanese oil platform is going to cost so much more, but maybe it's the first step down that path.
1: It might also shield Chinese investors from fluctuations within China, within Chinese growth. You know, kind of. I mean, there's been talk that the Chinese growth might be slowing down slightly. I mean, you know, that that slowdown is still has to be seen against the context of like, you know, it's China's massive growth overall. But you know, kind of, it, it seems like there's also a certain amount of investment in, in uh, you know, consumerism within Africa. Um, you know, it's not simply investing in getting raw raw materials back to China. Um, but it's, it's, it's investing in Africans actually consuming stuff in Africa. And that, it seems to me, to be a kind of an, an, an interesting uh, and perhaps encouraging sign.
0: It's a good point. I yes. mean, Africa has some of the, the fastest growing economies on the earth, on earth right now. So, you know, for the Chinese to actually look at Africa. And again, this is one of the differences between the Chinese and the West, is the Chinese have long seen Africa as an opportunity. It's a place to make some money. And whereas the West has looked at Africa, for the most part, as a basket case that takes aid. So I think that's uh, that's actually a very interesting point. So um, that's going to be another topic that we will also keep our eye on, especially MeteorX, and to see how the investment's going. But to uh, kind of see the diversification of Chinese investments, um, especially if they do start to really trend and pick up outside of the extractive industries where they've been so strong. So let's close uh, the podcast today with a final Uh, essay, one that I actually wrote last week. Um, We usually don't talk about essays that I write too much, but uh, we thought this would be an interesting point of just examining who are the Chinese in Africa. Because when we talk about the Chinese, um, it's this kind of weird word that is an all encompassing word. And so, um, you know, so I wanted to kind of break it down so that you know, people could see that it's a very diverse, textured group of people who were there. Um, Kobus, did you have a, you had a chance to look at it? Did you agree or disagree with kind of my assessment on how it was broken down?
1: I really, I, you know, I thought you you broke it down very well. Kind of the, um, you know, it, I, I thought it was very interesting to kind of divide the the Chinese migrants according to class. You know, kind of so so your division was between the the super elites. Um you know, kind of who who uh, facilitate kind of government level kind of integration. Um, you know the managers who who you know kind of run individual companies um, operations in China, the entrepreneurs who run smaller businesses um, in in South Africa, I mean in, in Africa the Chinese businesses in Africa, and then peasants. Um, frequently, people who are who, are, uh, who move sideways, who um, you know, who's moved to Africa from China, is is a sideways move. Who don't and and who who lo- you know who are still quite kind of poverty stricken and who might never leave Africa, simply because they don't have enough money to go back to China. I thought that kind of class based. Kind of way of looking at it, kind of broke down this monolithic idea of all of these massive amounts of Chinese moving to Africa.
0: Yeah, and, and it's that monolith that really what I was trying to go for, because when most people talk about the Chinese in Africa, they talk about them in, in very much the same ways that they talk about Europeans. Now, to be fair, um, Europeans were by no means a monolith in Africa either. I mean, we know from the Dutch in South Africa that there were Dutch peasants in South Africa. the boers um, if incorrect me i'm I'm stepping out of my league here, but the Boers were not particularly a wealthy class um, is that uh is that accurate? I mean in some ways, there was a resemblance to the Chinese peasants who were who are coming
1: exactly exactly and you know, kind of the Boers were were largely a kind of a, pe- a peasant class who then kind of dragged themselves up. Uh, through a kind of a nationalization process in the 1910s and 1920s, you know Kind of similar to to a nationalization process that that, that happened in a lot of other countries at the same time um, And then kind of created an elite, you know, kind of from from that process. Yeah, but that used to be a you know a, Largely a kind of a farming kind of peasant class people
0: So I think it's interesting that we can learn some lessons from European migration and some of the same uh, Trends apply to Chinese migration. So that's again another reason why for me, it was important to kind of break apart this idea that the Chinese are a monolith. I think when most people think of the Chinese, they think of the state-owned enterprise that's coming and these big, kind of you know, you know, people talk about these camps, these war, you know, where the you know the dorms of workers, kind of barbed wire around it, and that's what people see. But when in fact you know from your own experience in Johannesburg and in Pretoria and probably even Cape Town that there are large populations of Chinese who have migrated there totally independent of any state-owned enterprise. They're setting up businesses. They're, they're entrepreneurs. Some of them are affiliated with uh, larger entities, but a lot are micro, uh, micro entrepreneurs who are just kind of coming over and, make, and doing what the Chinese have done all over the world for, for millennia.
1: Yes, I mean, you know, kind of my my worry is that from the Africans' perspective, they might not see it that way. In that that there's a kind of an idea of that the all of these people actually are in some way kind of organized or arranged or controlled by the Chinese
0: government. That, and I think
1: that, that is a perception that's still very strong.
0: Well, here's what's funny is that f- uh, from my experience, limited as it may be. Um, I actually felt that a lot of people on the ground had a much more nuanced view of the Chinese than Westerners from the outside looking in. And, and that's because when you live next door to somebody, um, and when you eat in the same, you know, eat from the same markets, and, and, I, and I hate to be graphic here, but you literally go to the same latrines as the Chinese peasant you have a different type of bond and a different type of understanding. Um, Remember, in in places like Kinshasa, no Westerners live in those shanty towns. No Westerners, you know, take a crap in those latrines or buy foods at those markets on a regular basis. For a Westerner to go to the local markets, it's kind of an exotic excursion, but then they don't go every day. Whereas for these Chinese migrants and these new immigrants— that's where they live. And so I, I, you know, my former employees in Kinshasa had a very pretty sophisticated understanding of who, who the Chinese were based on the fact that they lived with them and then also saw that there were Chinese who also lived in the diplomatic compounds and those elites as well. So we... it. It it, it might not be wise, I'm not suggesting that you're doing this, but it might not be wise to underestimate the local understanding and to overestimate the arrogance of kind of Western analysts like us sitting on the outside looking in.
1: But I have to say, I mean, that's, that, you know, that's very encouraging, definitely, to hear. I wonder, so so that makes me think that perhaps South Africa might be, just as South Africa always is, just much more kind of racially divided, you know, and much more, like, t- tending towards a, a fractured, kind of non-coherent, kind of, so, you know, social fabric that where people just all live in little ghettos.
0: It might, <laughs> it, well, it might, and, and again, it's like talking about race in the United States. It's such a charged issue. That it's, it's, it's impossible to escape our own history, whereas in Namibia, in Zimbabwe, in other places where race has been a factor, but never it's been a white-black thing, but really never on the level that it's been in the United States and South Africa, um, the assimilation m- might—and again, I, I say this all conditionally because it's too early to tell— Uh, might go smoother than it does in South Africa, where, again, race has played such a a painful role in, in the history, again, just like in the United States. So South Africa may not be representative of the continent as a whole.
1: Now, I wanted to ask you, and I don't want to put you on the spot because actually, you know, I don't have any data about this. And, you know, I, I, then we no one might have data about this. But do you have an idea of what the kind of gender breakdown is? You know, kind of the amount of men versus women coming?
0: Yeah. Uh, in fact, Solange Chatelard, who did, who in fact was the... Host of the Al Jazeera documentary uh, that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, King Cobra and the Dragon. She is a PhD candidate here in Paris at uh, l'Ecole Sciences Polytechnique. And she, in fact, does study gender in, uh, of Chinese immigrants in, in Africa. And one of the points that she says is that it does tend to uh, bias men more than women. And, and that's part of a broader migration, is that men oftentimes will go out get established, find a job, and then bring once he's sta- stable, bring the family over. So uh, so, that's, so there are, there tend to be, according to her research, more men that come in the early phase of, of any migratory pattern, and then women eventually come over as, uh, as it's been settled. In, in part because women have the broader responsibility back in China of care, not only for caring not only for the young, but also for the old. So, the entire family doesn't move at one time because of the broader familiar responsibilities back in China. So, that's been one of the issues. So, we see, you'll see, like in rural Cameroon on, uh, on Sina, the online social networking, um, you see mostly posts from men. Now, again, that's not any scientific breakdown, but it does suggest that Solange's point that this is a predominantly male phenomenon for now um, is, it, it seems to be accurate
1: my feeling is it's probably a good idea to keep to keep an eye on how that kind of gender divide develops you know because because intermarriage is obviously uh, you know kind of has traditionally always been a very kind of like uh, it's very powerful way of 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 binding countries together, and I mean one of the one of the, the classic examples is to bring to bring us back to our, our talk on uh, you know our, our discussion of Gabon, is the current AU um, leader African Union leader Jean Ping, um, who is half Gabonese half Chinese, um, and who has been you know kind of characterized you know I don't know how fairly as uh, as China's kind of man in Africa. Um, so uh, do, do you foresee kind of intermarriage as a kind of a, a powerful kind of factor in the future?
0: I actually am far more optimistic on Chinese intermarriage than I was on Western, on white intermarriage. And in part, I go back to, um, you know, the fact that people are living so close together. Um, and again, I'm not talking about the elites here. The elites will probably not intermarry for lots of reasons of class and culture and whatnot. But at that peasant level, which is for the most part where the, the majority of Chinese, and again, these are all, you know, this is all speculation because there is no precise accounting of how many Chinese and what class and where they are. But from most of the kind of academic analysis that I've read is that in just my own anecdotal experience is that the, the, the growth of the peasant population is the one that's going to continue to surge. And that peasant population puts people directly in contact with one another. And through that contact, um, it's inevitable that you'll start to see assimilation. It's inevitable that you start to see people speaking the same language and get to know one another. The one thing that's important is the fact that this is still such a young process. And I think a lot of people who have been very defensive of European and American and white presence in Africa have automatically shot back and say, well, the Chinese will never assimilate. And that's in part because they misunderstand the the, the, the the appeal that the Chinese may have on a local level. Again, I think the Chinese in their kind of barter tribal uh, outlook on life and their kind of very practical can-do and, and their ability to to tolerate incredible hardships— um, is something that is much more in sync with a lot of African values than the kind of Western elites who live in Africa. So, um, I actually am quite confident that you'll see more assimilation than most people are expecting.
1: I totally agree. and i think I think you know kind of the the point that you made that this is you know kind of this is the first peasant migration to Africa for a long time that is that makes a major difference you know because all, a lot of the other kind of ethnic minorities in Africa including the you know the Indian communities the Lebanese communities and so on that that you know are dotted around the continent um mm-hmm. you know you, you don't necessarily see so many kind of peasant class people kind of coming here anymore you know after after the 19th century um so this is the the fact that there's that there's parity economic parity between you know, immigrants and the the locals, that makes a massive
0: difference. It does. And also, I think scale is very important here. We're not talking about, you know, small pockets. This is hundreds of thousands of people that we're talking about. And if there's any indication uh, on, on the various China and Africa social networks designed for the Chinese migrating to Africa, and I'll post some links to these various sites, they're all in Chinese, but it's one ad after another about how they will bring you to Africa. They will find a job for you. They will set you up. And it's just, there's, there's opportunity in Africa. So I actually don't see, unless African governments come together to kind of close the doors as they have suggested in Zambia and other places. Um, Nonetheless, I don't see that trend, that migratory trend, slowing. And as a result of that migration, um, there's going to be, there's an inevitable level of assimilation. I don't think the Africans are going to resist globalization in the way that nobody else has been able to so far. And we know from, from history that, you know, when you put two groups of people together long enough, you know, They're going to get busy with one another and eventually there's going to be little little hybrids that come out of it. I mean, that's just the way it is and it's the way it's always (laughs) been. I mean, you know, you know, I don't I don't think they're going to defy that 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 trend of history.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm a I'm a massive kind of like pro kind of mixed marriage proponent. You know, kind of I want everyone to be in a mixed marriage, so I'm, I'm I'm very much kind of you know kind of in, in favor of this kind of development.
0: It's gonna take time, though. I mean, uh, uh, you know, just because it's fresh in our minds in King Cobra and the Dragon, uh, you know, one of the highlights for me was this little Chinese girl who spoke with a Zambian accent. And then when they asked the mother, you know, would you mind if she married a, you know, a black Zambian? The mother said, no, not at all. Uh, if she's happy, that's, that's it. And that, that goes to a couple key points. One, from my own experience in Kinshasa, was the Chinese are not leaving. These peasants are not going home. This is a permanent demographic change in Africa. And that is something that's very interesting. But, and, and as a result of the fact that they're not going home, they will intermarry. There's no, there's no question that they will intermarry. Um, so when it's a slow process to do that, we, we have not reached the first generation of children who are of the marrying age yet who've been born in Africa and know nothing else other than Africa. So that will be another 10 years or so. That first generation of children is literally just coming of age now. So, probably with the next, you know, when they're 18 to 25, the daughters will start to marry in Africa. So, we're still about eight years away from really seeing if that trend will take off.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's going to be fascinating to see what
0: happens. Yeah, the the sociological and the kind of the human-to-human trends, I think, are, are equally interesting as anything geopolitical or economic, as we've talked about. And it's one of the least understood of them all. And that's, I think, it's so easy for us to fall back on some of our own racial prejudices, to to kind of view race and culture in our own paradigm. And we're all prisoners of, of our own national narrative in that sense, too. You, you, South Africa, me, the United States. And I think that limits our understanding sometimes of the complexities of what's happening. You know, when we say Africa, that's a meaningless word, too, because what's happening in Algeria is different than what's happening in Zimbabwe and in, in Gabon. It's, you know, each society's having its own... Um, each African society is having its own, you know, progressing or, or regressing at its own pace. Exactly. And I think, you know, kind of each African society has different views of race as well. That's right. And a different and a radically different histories we know with South Africa. So, um, mm-hmm. so one of yet an, a number of subjects that we're going to continue to to talk about in the coming weeks. Um, that'll do it for this edition of the China and Africa podcast. Um, we are now hitting a stride of every two weeks. Um you know, getting together. So from Paris and Cape Town. So if you've got a topic that you want us to talk about, uh, you can tweet me direct on Twitter. I'm at Eolander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. And I'm tweeting on China Africa Affairs uh, pretty much every day. Also, you can reach us on the China Africa Project website. Um, that's a site that uh, that I've launched, and Kobus is going to be contributing to, and hopefully some of his colleagues from Stellenbosch will be contributing as well. You can reach us through the contact page there, and uh, and Kobus, if they want to find you on Twitter, where they where where can they go? I'm at Stardedesk. It's S T A D E N e s q u e excellent and so uh, so through the the website china africa project through the podcast which you can find on iTunes and of both of us on twitter we're very easy to reach and we'd love to hear from you uh, any of your feedback if you disagree with what we're saying that's great too we also want to hear your feedback and we'll kind of air some of your discussions on the next podcast so until the next time in 2 weeks we'll talk to you very soon